Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. All right, good morning. It's so good to be with you all this morning. Let's go ahead and uh, just close our eyes and pray just for a few seconds. Precious Jesus, we absolutely adore you this morning. Lord, you are our obsession. You're the oxygen in our souls. And Father, we just pray for a greater revelation of your son this morning. God, we just pray that you would just unearth in our hearts a greater longing, a greater hunger, a greater zeal, a greater passion to know the Lord Jesus in these last days, God. Father, we thank you for more. We want to know you. We want to love you in a greater capacity. So, Father, we just say pour your spirit out on this house, God. Pour your spirit out on your people this morning, Lord. We adore you. We praise you. We love you in Jesus' name. Can we say amen? Amen. 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 You know, it's moved my heart so deeply uh, the last couple weeks. How many of you ever have been able to come to our prayer nights um, at 7 o'clock? It's moved my heart so deeply to see just how many people are showing up every day to consecrate themselves and to give themselves to the place of prayer. I, I heard it said before. I forget who it was. I think it was Leonard Ravenhill. He said, if you want to see how popular a church is, just go on a Sunday morning and see the attendance. If you want to see how popular the pastor of the church is, go to the Sunday night service and see the attendance. But if you want to see how popular Jesus is in a church, go to the prayer meeting and see how many people show up. And I'm so encouraged that Jesus is the most popular person in our church right now. Amen. So encouraged. And if you can picture it um, in times of, of prayer and fasting, how I like to illustrate it. Prayer and fasting, what I feel like it does in the spirit, if you could picture like a foggy, foggy night, it's almost like if you can see a, land, a, a runway strip with lights that are flashing, and it's almost communicating a message on a foggy night, lights that are flashing on a, on a landing strip at an airport, communicating a message that says, Jesus, come and land here. That's what I believe prayer and fasting does, is it sends this message to heaven when in seasons and hours where it's kind of foggy and darkness is over the earth, it sends this message saying, come Jesus and land here. I just believe we are a landing strip for his presence in, the, in this day of prayer and fasting. And one thing I love about, about prayer and fasting is I believe there's a difference between what's in my heavenly bank account and what's in my earthly possession. See, I believe what's in our heavenly accounts is prophetic words, all these things we've been believing for, promises God has spoken. And what I believe and I want to submit to you is what prayer and fasting does is prayer and fasting is the transaction that moves what's in my account into my earthly possession. <laughs> And I want to suggest that there's a lot more in our possession now than there was 14 days ago. And we still have a whole nother week. Who's encouraged by that? We're excited. So that this morning, I really felt led to teach on the topic called communing with Jesus, communing with Jesus. And this is, a, this is going to be a message on prayer. I know we talked about prayer at the beginning of the year last, last year. Um, but more specifically, I really feel like this is a discipleship teaching this morning. And, and discipleship is, is one of those words that kind of loses its biblical definition the more we say it. How I many you know there's a lot of, a lot of uh, Christianese words that the more we say it, the more it just kind of becomes numb to us and it loses that, that biblical definition that it was first intended to have. You know, I grew up in, in Word of Faith Church, and so it was like you didn't really have permission to, like, not be okay. So if you see someone in the hallway, they're like, how are you doing? You have to say, I'm blessed and highly favored. Praise the Lord. You could have just had the worst day of your life, but you have to, you know. <laughs> it's like, praise the Lord. And how I many of you know there's a difference, that word praise the Lord, from when you say it passively to when you're in a worship moment and the Spirit of God hits it like a flame and you say, praise 
praise the Lord, oh my soul. And what I believe the Lord is doing is, I believe he's wanting his church to be less cheap and more holy with its verbiage. <laughs> I believe he's bringing a holiness back to the verbiage in his bride, less cheap and more holy. And one of the words I believe he's wanting to like, not redefine, but go back to this biblical definition is the word called discipleship. Discipleship has been one of those words that honestly, I, I have had a hard time really getting a, a definition for it. Um, I've heard many things about it. I've heard it's breaking bread with people, which I believe it is. It's, you know, if you want to go to IHOP, Denny's with someone, Waffle House, that's discipleship. Um, one of the most trendy definitions I've heard of discipleship is it's merely doing life with people, which I believe that's absolutely true. <laughs> but I want to, I just want to suggest that we could have potlucks and drink lattes with each other until we're blue in the face. But if Jesus in his presence is not the center of our breaking bread, then we're just spinning our wheels and gaining a bunch of weight in the process. <laughs> and so I want to go in scripture right now. And I want Jesus to define discipleship for us. I don't want to give you my opinion of what discipleship is. I'm not going to define it. I want Jesus to define it in scripture for us as it relates to communing with him. So I want to go to, if you could open up to Luke chapter 11, verse 11. I'm going to be talking a lot from Luke chapter 11 today. One day, Jesus was praying. So he was communing with the Lord. He was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. In other words, he's saying, don't just tell me I should pray. Take me by the hand and introduce me to the throne room. And I believe that cry is reemerging in the bride of Christ today. Teach me to commune with God. Don't teach me a prayer list. Teach me how to go into the deep places and commune with the Lord of Lords. So he's saying, teach me to pray. Here it is right here, what discipleship is. Just as John taught his disciples. Just as John taught his disciples. So here is discipleship 101. Not as defined by me, but as defined by Jesus himself. Discipleship is you teaching others how to engage with heaven. You bringing others into your walk on how to engage and commune with the Lord. And whether that's in your home, teaching your children how to pray, whether it's in a bigger scale, you own a company and you're bringing employees on your journey of, hey, here's how I engage the Lord. Here's how I teach the Lord. Or maybe the Lord will trust you in a bigger scale. But at its core, discipleship 101 is you taking others by the hand and saying, here is Jesus. Here is the throne room. Here is his feet. That is discipleship 101. Teach me to pray. And I believe we talked about this a lot last year. In order, in order to understand the magnitude of what this disciple asked Jesus, we need to understand what he did not ask Jesus. As someone who, it doesn't, it doesn't specify which disciple it was, but as someone who walked with the Lord day after day, seeing him walk on water, seeing him prophesy, seeing him raise the dead and heal the sick, all these activities right here, you would think he would say, teach me how to raise the dead or teach me how to walk on water, or, teach me how to heal the sick. But in this disciple's mind, he connected all of these activities back to one singular activity in Jesus' life, which is the place of prayer and communion with the Lord. If you get this one thing, you get all the other things. This is the one thing that gives you everything, everything, everything. I believe in schools of healing and schools of prophecy, but more than that, I believe in the school that teaches me to, how do I connect with the heartbeat of God? <laughs> that's, that's what I believe in. Teach me how to commune and connect with God. He didn't, ask, he didn't ask, teach me how to gather crowds. He didn't ask, teach me how to grow my following. He said, teach me how to commune with the Lord. I believe much of the American church is asking the wrong questions. <laughs> 
I believe if Jesus came in the room, the majority of American churches would ask him, they wouldn't ask him this question. They would ask him, how do we get a bigger following? How do I do this stuff? And I believe the Lord is shifting, creating a seismic shift in the narrative and the questions that the church is asking, going from how do I do this stuff? How do I get a bigger church? How do I grow my, my giving? How do I do this? To if you would just sit at my feet and learn to love me, then you wouldn't have to worry about all that stuff. Just learn the secret of the one thing, and it'll take care of everything. Amen? I said in my devotion um, I wrote a couple weeks ago, we are living in an hour where giftedness is replacing givenness. Popularity is replacing purity. Leaders are replacing lovers. And ministers are becoming more skilled at moving people than moving heaven. Through all the mire of this results-driven culture, I am hearing a Mary of Bethany cry coming from a remnant who are shouting within themselves, where have you taken my Lord? The Shulamite said in Song of Songs, all night I long on my bed. I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but I did not find him. I will get up now. What is this getting up out of complacency, getting up of what cultural Christianity is telling us, getting up from that mire? The sleepy-eyed bride said, I will get up now and search for the one my heart loves. I want to suggest this is the heart cry of the bridal revival that the Lord is bringing to his house, to his church. It was said of Catherine Coleman. I love this, this excerpt. It was said that she manifested the power of the Holy Spirit wherever she went. No matter how large or small a building was, sinner or saint, they always knew when Miss Coleman entered the building because the whole atmosphere seemed to change. There's even recordings of her walking through airports and people who are just waiting for their flights are falling out in the spirit underneath the power of God that rests on her. It says, traveling constantly, she prayed continuously. Her life was a commitment to prayer. Before her meetings, her staff says that Miss Coleman could be seen pacing back and forth, head up, head down, arms flung into the air, hands clasped behind her with her face covered in tears. Oral Roberts tells us of the intensity of her prayers. It says, he says this, it was like her prayers were talking back and forth to each other, and you couldn't tell where Catherine started and where the Holy Spirit left off. It was complete oneness. And I just want to say for all of us that this depth of intimacy with the Lord. It's not just reserved for the God's generals that the books are written about. It is attainable to every single person who says yes to it. See, I believe right now in this hour, the Lord is not looking for the most gifted or talented, who, the people who have the best resumes or accolades. He's looking for those who say yes to him most consistently in the place of prayer. Give him your yes. So this morning, um, I, I want it to be as if we're just sitting down and I'm opening up my heart to you and taking you through my own time of communion with the Lord, just as the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And I'm a really big reader and I just finished this book. I always like to give you guys some uh, resources of what has been impacting me. Uh, this book right here, it's called Experiencing the Depths of Jesus Christ. This book has marked me unlike any book I've ever read. This book was written in 1685. Yes, I said 1685. It was written, um, it was originally written in French and it's been translated and rewritten into um, the New English. And the woman who wrote this, her name is Jean Guyon. And this book was publicly burned in France and it was banned because it was so radical in introducing people to a Jesus that was so attainable and so tangible. So I just encourage you that this is the most practical book on prayer. I know a lot of books on prayer can sometimes be a little mystical and ethereal, but this is so practical. It will just walk you through having a deeper prayer life with the Lord. So really encourage you to get this Experiencing the Depths of Jesus Christ by Jean Guyon. All right, so before I tell you what I believe prayer and communion with God is, I first want to take you through what core convictions I have of what prayer is not, all right? Some misconceptions we may have about prayer. So first, successful prayer is not measured by volume, by the loudness or softness of your voice. 
So I want to suggest that volume is not an indication of anointing. I've been in really loud prayer meetings that are not anointed. It's just uh, clanging cymbals. But then I've been in really unanointed prayer meetings that are really quiet. So I just want to say the volume of your voice does not determine the anointing that you have in prayer. Michael Culliano said this recently. He said, I believe a day is coming where the church will be more quiet, but 10 times more powerful. <laughs> More quiet, but 10 times more powerful. The, the volume of my voice does not scare hell, but the depth of my intimacy with Jesus does. Didn't the, the demon who say, you, I know Paul, I know Jesus, but who are you? <laughs> See, we should be famous in heaven and feared by hell. And it doesn't require us screaming and shouting. Sometimes it's needed. It doesn't require even whispering. Just be true to whatever the Lord is, is moving through you. Be true to your personality. Whatever your personality is, uh, just don't try to generate a river. You can't generate a river, but you can join a river, all right? Can't generate it, but you can join one, all right? Just yield. All right. Also, I want to say on this point, prayer is not talking to devils and principalities. <laughs> if I leave a prayer meeting more aware of the devil and his schemes than I am of the beauty of Jesus, I was not praying. I was just exhausting myself. I believe there is a place absolutely for binding and loosing. But just like Smith Wigglesworth, the story goes that he was laying in his bed at night and the devil appeared to him in the, in, right there in his face and he looked over and just said, oh, it was you and went back to bed. That's the power of ignore with the enemy. <laughs> Why did the devil get cast out of heaven? He wanted your attention. He wanted your worship. So when our prayers are directed towards fighting the devil, he's getting what he actually wants. Jesus said when he died and resurrected that he has all authority. How many of you know all authority means all authority? If Jesus has all authority, the devil has no authority. All right? Um, Pastor Bill Johnson would talk about his son, Brian. Brian Johnson would go to San Francisco, downtown San Francisco, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, necessarily do anything, but he would sit on the curb and he would just get his guitar and begin ministering to the Lord, exalting Jesus over the city. He would do this on the weekends. And finally, um, the police came to him and said, every time you sit here and worship the Lord, our 911 calls just stop. <laughs> he said, crime just stops in this area. That is the power of exalting Jesus right there, of exalting the Lord. All right. Secondly, successful prayer does not require talking the entire time. One of my favorite definitions of prayer, it's not talking to God, but it is talking with God. It's a two-way conversation. And I want to read in um, Luke chapter 11, verse 2, in the NIV. Jesus said, he said to them, when you pray, say. Notice, according to scripture, Praying, according to Jesus, begins before a word is ever spoken out of our mouths. When you pray, pause, then start saying. The saying is not the entirety of praying, but the saying is a part of the praying. And so what I would say is allow prayer, point your affections to the Lord, point your devotion to him, allow prayer to kick in the heart and then verbalize whatever you're feeling. Verbalize the words that are coming out. Jean Guyon, the writer of this book says, there are two reasons why people are silent. The first is because a person has nothing to say. And the other is because a person has too much to say. In the case of deep prayer with the Lord, the latter is true. The sweetest silence is often produced from excess and overflow, not lack. Silence can be the most sweetest thing between us and the Lord in our quiet time. It's not about it's not about lack, it's about excess. It's, have you ever been in a moment with the Lord? You just, no word will be able to do it. You just have no words. It's just, I have to keep silent right now. You are still in the place of prayer when you are in that moment because when you pray, then say. All right, third, developing a prayer life is not religious, legalistic, or based in striving, all right? If, 
anyone tells you that spending more time communing with the Lord is legalistic or religious, that is a lie from hell. I just want to say that. The devil would want nothing more than to keep you out of the secret place between you and the Lord. All right? As I've said before, I grew up really at the peak of the, the hyper grace movement. And um, I, I struggled a lot with anxiety and depression throughout my teenage years. It was just a big, big thing that was just attack me a lot. And I remember going to youth leaders for advice and they were well-meaning. They were just kind of telling me what they had, had heard. And I said, I feel like I need to seek the Lord more. I feel like my, he's calling me to a deeper place in his word and his presence. And the, the response I would typically get back was, oh no, you're covered by grace. You don't need to seek God anymore. He loves you just as you are. You don't have to seek him. And that didn't resonate in my heart at the time. It was almost like I had this flame in my heart that was trying to kindle and it was like water on the flame of my heart. So I believe, you know, I believe there has obviously been many errors in Christianity with legalism and, and religion, true errors even today in legalism, religion, all that stuff. But I want to suggest to you, we can't allow the errors of a truly legalistic past cause us to be an excuse to not live lives of holiness, purity, and to not seek the Lord with passion in our hearts. That, that, that's, it's, it's not legalism, it's love. It's love. Me saying, I want you, Lord. I want to know you more deeply. That, that's love right there. I'm not pursuing him to get, to, to, to get more love from him. I know he can not love me anymore or any less, but anything beyond that, I want to know him. I can't know him from a distance. I have to know him in secret. All right. Lastly, prayer does not grow by you being hard on yourself or being introspective. I just want to say when you are developing a prayer life, don't try to gauge and evaluate how you're doing or how you're progressing or how successful you are uh, at prayer. I remember when I was, uh, I was a worship leader when I was a teenager and when I was a senior in high school, I would take voice lessons. I would actually, I was living in Colleen, grew up there, and I would make the drive two and a half hours to McKinney and do voice lessons with a vocal coach. And I could not sing. I still can't sing. And <laughs> bless my heart, I just thought, eh, I'm going to take voice lessons and it never helped me at all. <laughs> I could take as many voice lessons as I wanted. It never helped me. <laughs> but I remember... My coach, um, she was a little sassy, and I kind of, I kind of liked it. I remember, <laughs> I remember after one session, I just said, "Oh, I feel like I've gone backwards. I feel like I'm doing terrible. I feel like I've gone just regressed." And she stopped me cold. She said, "You are the student. I am the coach. It is not up to you to evaluate your progress and how you're doing. It's up to me as the coach." to evaluate your success. And so I just want to set some people free today and say, it is not your job to evaluate how you're doing in the place of prayer. That is the Lord's job to evaluate you. And I just want to say, as long as you're just showing up, I don't know one mother or father who would be upset that their child showed up to be with them. As long as you're showing up, you're succeeding. Just show up. He might say, I don't know how to pray. Well, Paul said that. You don't know how to pray, but the Spirit will help you, all right? You don't know how to pray. That is every single person in this room. The, the Bible tells us we don't know how to pray, but the Spirit will help us, all right? You don't have to be your coach. You don't have to evaluate yourself. You don't have to be hard on yourself. That's introspection. That is not the Lord. Any, any thought or feeling in your head that does not give you hope is rooted in a lie. All right. So just push that aside. All right. On this topic, I just want to say a little bit more. Your feelings can be liars. You know, we live in a culture right now that is telling our youth, telling us that you are what you feel. <laughs> And I just want to say that you are not what you feel. Your feelings can lie to you. We, our identity is not based on our feelings. It's by, based on what the word of God says. And that word never changes. You might say, well, I know the word says that, but I feel this and I have peace between God. Well, I don't know what kind of peace you found, but if it is not validated by scripture, that is not a peace from God right there. That is, that is artificial peace. 
It's not going to last, all right? I've heard that many times. Oh, I know it says this, but I feel. But between me and God, if it does not go, if it goes against scripture, it is a lie, all right? Just want to say that. All right. Next, uh, the rest of my time this morning, I want to give three keys of communing with Jesus. Communing with Jesus. The first one, the key of dwelling and abiding. Dwelling and abiding. When I was praying over this year, I really felt strongly, specifically for, for us as a, as a church, I felt that the Lord uh, was inviting us corporately and personally to intensify our devotion to Jesus in the place of worship. And you might say, hey, we're Dwell Church. We do worship really well, right? We do, I mean, my goodness, what happened today was amazing. And that's why I believe the Lord is emphasizing that in my heart because I believe the things we are most known for will be the things that will be most attacked and contested by the enemy. The thing you are most known for, your reputation, the thing that you are known for will be the thing that will be most contested and attacked by hell, all right? It's like when Jesus in Revelation addressed the church of Sardis. He said, hey, you have a reputation for being alive, but really you're dead. I'm not suggesting that's happening or gonna happen. But he said, your reputation, in other words, your Instagram bio on your church says you're alive. (laughs) Your website says you're alive, (laughs) but when I cut you open as a church, what's happening inside of you is not indicative of what's happening around you. I can think of places like that. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us all. (laughs) I just want to say, let's protect the worship we have. And the only way we can protect what we have in God is to continuously go after more in God. Jesus said, even what you have will be taken from you if you do not give more. Even what you have will be taken. Let's protect what we have and ante it up even more this year. All right. Secret place. So I want to go right here. Let's go ahead and go to Psalms 91 because I want to start talking about the secret place and dwelling with the Lord. Psalms 91, I'm going to be reading in the New King James Version. He who, what, dwells, say it again, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. This is understandably a very quoted, very popular psalm because it has just myriads of promises and blessings that we can take hold of as believers. I just want to read some of it. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you'll take refuge. And his faithfulness will be your rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that stalks in the darkness nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 on your other. And it goes on and on. How many of you have quoted this before? This this Psalm was quoted really a lot during the pandemic. And I believe very few of us truly understand that this is a conditional psalm. And I'm gonna explain it. (laughs) I'm gonna explain it. This is a conditional psalm that hinges on the first couple words of the psalm. He who dwells in secret. See, I realized for myself during pandemic, I can't just claim all these blessings if I'm binge watching Netflix all day. If that's the case, the world can claim these blessings. But, but no, these blessings, you can find them under um, the umbrella of the secret place of prayer. You don't get all this stuff unless you are under that covering, that umbrella of the dwelling place of the Lord. He who dwells. He who dwells in secret. Notice it says he who dwells in secret, not he who visits secret. <laughs> Please hear what I'm about to say. There's a difference between those who dwell in God's presence and those who visit God's presence. And I want to suggest today in this hour, he is looking for dwellers, <laughs> not visitors. He's, he's looking, he's not looking for people who have one to win. I don't know. He wants all of you. 98% of my heart won't do. <laughs> it won't do. He wants every bit 
of us. To dwell somewhere means to make that place a permanent place of residency. And that's my cry. Every time I'm in here praying, whether it's Friday at noon, whether it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, my greatest cry is, Jesus, come and live here. Come and live here. You might say, well, God is with us always. And that's true. There is his omnipresence who is always with us. But then there's that that depth of manifest presence that rests on very few houses. So my cry is, Jesus, recline here, recline here, recline here. Come and live here to dwell somewhere. There's a story I heard of a a pastor who was uh, getting really bogged down with a bunch of counseling sessions from his people. There was just like this attack of the enemy on his staff, on his congregation, but it was like really petty stuff. So he was just spending so many hours in his day counseling people over little small mundane issues. And so um, every single counseling session, he asked them this question, what is your secret place with the Lord like? Are you in his word? Are Are you spending time with him? Every single person, eh, no, no, no. So finally, he made this requirement to his secretary. If anybody wants to schedule a counseling session with me, they need to spend an hour every day for a week in prayer in scriptures and then come back and let me see how many problems you have. His counseling sessions got cut by 80%. <laughs> because so much of what we deal with and struggle with, if we would just learn to be alone and secret, it's almost like if you can, the the issues we have in life, they're like hot coals. And we bring these hot coals to a rainforest when we go into the secret place and the rain just cools on the coals of our hearts just by being there, just by being there. It's, that's, That's Jesus. I'm not saying to not get counseling. We need each other. We need counseling. But if I go to counseling and do not meet the man Jesus through the counseling, I'm going to stay bound and messed up. I'm going to stay bound and messed up. I've been to counseling and therapy before, but I can see how people can make an idol of it and idolize the method and not the man that they're trying to meet in it. That's what I want to say. All right. I want to go back to Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Notice the progression here. Dwelling is unto abiding, which is unto the overshadowing presence of the Lord. The result of dwelling will always be the overshadowing of the Lord. The overshadowing. So I want to give, this is the best example I can really give in Scripture of the overshadowing presence of the Lord. Acts 5.12 says, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least, at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. I want to suggest to you that your shadow will always release whatever is overshadowing you. Your shadow will always release whatever is overshadowing you. Imagine being one of these people, this is just my imagination in in the book of Acts, having a a life-threatening illness and and hearing stories of, I, I heard there was a man named Jesus who died and resurrected. There was a woman who I heard that touched the tassel of his robe and was instantly healed after 12 years. And your faith elevates a little more. And then another person might speak up. Oh, I heard a man named, named Paul. He saw Jesus and it blinded him. And Paul knew Jesus so well that he didn't even have to lay hands on people. They just took his aprons and his his robes and laid them on sick people. And they came alive and were healed and resurrected. Could it be, could it be if the tassel on Jesus healed, if the aprons from Paul healed, could someone's shadow (laughs) rest on me when they pass by? See, God is always going to take us from glory to glory to glory in the secret place. He never regresses us when we are with him in secret. Your shadow is contagious. See, Peter, he didn't go to a healing school. He just walked beside Jesus. (laughs) He just walked beside him and healing flowed from him. The Lord is looking for people 
who are amateurs on stage, but who are experts in secret. <laughs> one, of the, one of the issues I believe that has happened over the last few years is that pastors and leaders have become more comfortable up here on stage ministering to people in public than we are in private ministering to the Lord in secret. I want to become an expert in secret and an amateur up here. That's my heart's cry. His shadow healed. All that to say, build a secret place with Jesus. Your, whatever is overshadowing you, you'll release it to others. Second one, the key of hunger and dependency. The key of hunger and dependency. I've discovered in my life as I've grown older and grown deeper in the Lord, the Lord doesn't so much add on to me, but he reduces me, <laughs> right? It's almost like pruning. You get chopped down. It's like, congratulations, you've just been promoted. That's, that's the kingdom of the Lord sometimes. It's like, that doesn't feel like promotion. That really hurts right now. But this is the upside down kingdom we're in. It's like, how many of you have ever been in a pruning season where it's like, oh, you're saying I'm being promoted, God, but this hurts so bad. This is, <laughs> that is the, the, the promotion of the Lord. He takes the sandpaper of his spirit and whittles us away until there's nothing but us and him. And in the, in the natural, maturity is measured by how independent and self-sufficient we can be as adults. But in the spirit, it is quite opposite. Maturity in the spirit is not evaluated by my independency, but my dependency on the Lord, my depth of how much I need him. So I want to read here in Luke chapter 11. I wanna, I'm continuing in Luke chapter 11. I know I'm bouncing all over the Bible right now. <laughs> but he said to them in verse 2, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Notice it does not say monthly bread. It does not say Sunday morning 10 a.m. bread. It does not say weekly bread, but daily bread. Just want to say the absence, if I'm ever in a season where there's an absence of prayer in my life, that is the biggest indicator that I'm walking in pride. Because for me to not pray, to not be with the Lord in private is to say, I can do this on my own. It communicates this message that I've got it. And pretty soon I'm going to realize that I don't got it. <laughs> right? And how many of you have been in a season like that? It's like, I got this. Things are good. You fall, okay, I need to go back to my knees right here, right? Daily bread. And bread, bread in scripture, anytime you see bread, it always speaks of God's voice. It speaks of God's word. It speaks of the scriptures. And in 2019, there was a study that was done where they surveyed how many Protestants, like us, how many Protestants read their Bibles every day. It was heartbreaking. The statistic was they found that only 32% of church-going Protestants say they read their Bibles every day. They read their Bibles every day. Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds, not every word that has come, but proceeds. The mouth of God is an eternal dispenser of the bread of everlasting life. It's an eternal one. He said, man cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You and I are alive because he speaks to us. The moment we turn our hearts from this reservoir of God's mouth, we begin dying in our hearts, in our hearts. In chapter six of uh, John, I love this story. I think I've shared a few times, but Jesus has a big crowd that he's preaching to, multitudes that are there. And things are going really well in the sermon until he starts talking about eating my flesh and drinking his blood. And I take scripture literally. It said that every single person in that crowd got offended and left him, except the 12, except the 12. And he asked Peter, are you going to go too? See, any other normal pastor would probably, if 90% of the church left, I would go track them down and start apologizing for offending them and say, I'm sorry, here's what I meant. Please come back, please come back. But you see the security in Jesus? He said, hey, if you wanna leave, guys, you can leave too. I'm good. I'm still going to the cross whether I have you with me or I don't have you. I'm still going to the cross. 
And he looked at them and said, are you going to leave too? Peter responded with something that just causes my heart to burn every time I read it. He said, where else will we go, Lord? See, we need more people that will burn our bridges and just cut out every other option like that. We just need people who would just say, I refuse to have any other option in my heart but the Lord. I think one big issue in our culture is we just have too many options in our face right now. Have too many options. Where else will we go? You have the, what, words of eternal life. See, the modern reader today, we read this, eat my flesh, drink my blood. We know what he's talking about because we know the whole story. But the, the current, the audience right here that Jesus is speaking to did not have the full story. So they had to look a little deeper and look beyond the veil. And what I believe was happening is that I don't believe Peter and the disciples understood what Jesus was talking about any more than the crowds that left him. But here's what I, what I do know. I believe that Peter, in his heart, was saying, I don't know what he's talking about, but when he speaks, my heart comes alive. My heart burns when this man opens his mouth. I don't understand a word sometimes that he's saying, but I'm alive. I have breath. How many of you feel that when you come into the presence of God? <gasps> it's like I can breathe again. I have breath. I, I have life. I, that Only the Lord can do that. See, Jesus doesn't just merely make things better, although he does. He makes dead things come alive. <laughs> See, salsa on a taco makes it better. <laughs> Cream in a coffee makes it better. <laughs> but to say that Jesus just makes things better is an understatement. He makes a dead church come alive. That's what his presence does. I'm fasting right now, so I'm thinking about tacos and all the good stuff. You know, one more week, Jesus. <laughs> I love you. I love fasting. I love fasting, guys. I love it. I promise. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't believe the, the amount of conversations I have with people who walk through these doors who come in and are just like, hey, this wasn't really my cup of tea at first. This, I just saw a Google review. Uh, this, this wasn't really what I was raised in. I don't understand it all. You guys are really expressive but I'm alive every time I enter these doors. See, I can't make that happen on my best day. Pastor Dave and Nicole on their own can't make that happen on their best day. That's only the Lord Jesus himself that can make that happen. There's no amount of marketing we could do to bring the fire of God in our room. There, there's, there's, it doesn't happen. Like You can't buy the anointing. You, you can't pay a price for it monetarily, but you can go in your room, shut away, and lock the door. Just give me a jug of water and a 40-day fast, and I can know the Lord Jesus more deeply like that. See, I, I, we can't market this thing. We can't market what we have here. A day without Jesus doesn't just give us a bad day. It is death. It is death. Last thing I want to say on this point, and then I'll, I'll wrap it up. Luke chapter 11, verse 4. This is Jesus continuing to talk about the model prayer. He says, this is how you should pray. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. This line always puzzled me. God would never lead me into temptation, so why would I need to pray and ask him to not lead me into a place where he's never going to lead me? <laughs> See, the Lord's going to lead me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why on earth would Jesus think it's necessary for me to incorporate this prayer in my life to ask the Lord to lead me into something that I know he's not gonna lead me into. What I believe Jesus is getting at when he's talking about this is he's expressing to me and you the importance of living in an ever-increasing awareness of our own abilities to fail every day. I wanna say that again. He is expressing for us to live every day with an awareness of our own ability to fail, to fail. No one is above temptation in this room. No pastor, no preacher, no one is above temptation. This is, he's illustrating dependency. He's illustrating, hey, if you want to grow a prayer life, you need to be in continual need of me. This is daily need, daily dependency. 
We need to always be aware of our ability to fail. If you study any great football team, sorry, ladies, I know women usually check out when I start talking about football, so I'm sorry. Um, if you study any great football team, the, any great dynasty, the moment that they begin to start falling and failing is the moment they believe that they are unbeatable, that no one can beat them, and pretty soon a small team comes and trips them up and embarrasses them. Just want to say, I've seen so many Christians who they, they first come to the Lord and they have that gleam in their eye, that hunger. They don't have much. They don't have a house. They don't have a family, but they have this hunger, this desperation, this dependency. They're in the place of prayer. They're coming to church every week. And then the Lord starts favoring them and blessing them. They get the house. They get the, the, the car, the whatever it is they're believing for, the job, the salary. And little by little, they lose that gleam in their eye. They lose that, that childlike hunger and you don't hear the same tenderness in their voice anymore. There's just something missing. Their bodies are present, but they don't have that zeal that they once had. And no one is above that. It's so easy for us when the Lord starts blessing a people and filling us. It's so easy to get caught up in the breakthrough, to get caught up in the favor. And, and one of the most difficult things is to learn to remain full and hungry at the same time. And I just want to say, no matter how much the Lord puts his hand on this house, may we always be on our faces, desperate for the Lord to touch us. No amount of salary can satisfy our hearts like Jesus can. There's, there's nothing that the, that, that the world can give that can touch us like Jesus can. We will never exhaust our need for Jesus. just want to say that. We will never grow out of our need for dependency the more we grow in Jesus actually demands a greater need for him on our lives. Last thing I want to say, uh, last key, I could have piano come. Number three, the key of repentance and the rekindling. Repentance and rekindling. Back in September, um, towards the end of the Dwell Conference, I preached at the Dwell Outpour, and I briefly touched on Samson and uh, as I was preparing, I really felt like the Lord wanted me to go more in depth on the life of Samson this morning. And uh, life of Samson is just so sobering. It's in some ways, I believe, a warning to uh, the global church as a whole. And uh, it's really a warning that we, we, we can't live double lives of sin, just to put it plainly. Is that okay? <laughs> I just want to tell everyone a wedding is coming. <laughs> If you want to know where this whole train is headed, it's headed towards a wedding where Jesus will marry his bride, which is us. And God will not present his son, a bride who is filled with earthly mixture and sin and double mindedness. And I don't know how he's going to get us there, but he will get us there to a pure and spotless bride without stain or wrinkle. I'm not sure how many of you have realized it, really since COVID hit, 2020, what has typically taken about two years for sin to come out in the lives of church leaders is really now taken two weeks for it to be exposed. That's just the, the time we're living in right now. What has really taken two years for exposure to happen in hidden, with hidden sin has really taken two weeks. And that's just what we're living in right now. The, 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 the time is coming. The, the hour's late. Midnight is here. It's, the dawn is almost here. He's going to break the eastern sky one day, whether it's in this generation or the generation to come or a hundred generations to come. There will be a day where human eyes will witness the eastern sky cracking open and Jesus descending with ten thousands upon ten thousands. That's where we're headed. Judges chapter 16. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret. Everybody say that word, secret, of his great strength and how we can overpower him. See, they were asking him, her to just whittle him away enough so that he can take the secret that was meant to be only between him and the Lord and reveal it to the enemy. Tell me the secret. See, no demon in hell can steal your secret place. 
but we can choose to give it away. We can choose to relinquish it. Verse six, so Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret, there that word is again, of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Notice that word secret again. And what we later come to find out is Samson ends up revealing to Delilah what was supposed to be a secret between him and the Lord only. I wanna say, you know, there are, encounters I've had and prophetic words I've had and revelations I've had that if I were to reveal them and broadcast them publicly, it would just lose the sweetness that I have between me and the Lord in private. It's like the question can be asked, do we have a greater affection and what people might comment and like, or are we more careful about the wind of the spirit when we get in secret? Are we more careful about tending to this in secret? Verse seven, Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings, but she's lying here, that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that that had not been dried and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called him, Samson, the Philistines are on you, but he snapped the bowstrings as easily a piece of string snaps. What is it speaking of? It's speaking of his public anointing to get up publicly and break the demonic strongholds off. Just, I know how to do it. I have the secret place. I'm, I'm tethered to it. I know how to break the demonic strongholds off like that. Break whatever the enemy puts on me. That right there speaks of your public anointing. After this happened, any other normal man would run from his life from a woman like that. She must've been a good cook or must've been really pretty or something. But Samson must have been just a few sandwiches short of a picnic or dropped on his head as a baby. And this story continued to play itself out two more times until verse 16. With such, listen to the language, with such nagging, that's what the enemy does. He pokes away at your armor, pokes away, pokes away, pokes away at your armor until you'll give in. Prodded him every day until he was sick to death of it. Most heartbreaking words, so he told her everything. Notice the language of what broke him to reveal his secret. It was entertaining the nagging and wearing away of the enemy. I wanna say, refuse to entertain even the smallest hints of sin the enemy may throw into the garden of your secret place. Scripture says there should not even be what a hint of sexual immorality, why? Because if I entertain a hint, a hint never stays a hint. If I give the devil a hint, he will end up devouring my entire life with sin. The little stuff, it doesn't happen overnight. I wanna share a story. Um, When we were at at Bible school, there was a a pastor that shared a testimony that he had of uh, how he, he fell in the ministry and stumbled and how the Lord restored him, restored his marriage. So the, the testimony he's sharing with us at the time happened about 10 years prior. So he's fully restored. God completely restored him back to ministry, which rarely ever happens. So uh, this, this pastor, he was a teacher at the school of ministry at Bethel. And he began uh, having one-on-one counseling sessions with a young lady in the school, which obviously you should never do. Wisdom says you should never do that by yourself. And long story short, he ended up having an affair, cheating on his wife, and just the whole thing blew up. But what he shared about how he fell into this, because this didn't happen overnight. He said, if you could picture your secret garden with the Lord, your, your secret dwelling, that, that place between you and God, if you could picture the enemy standing outside, throwing tiny little pebbles across the fence. A pebble might land, you might say, oh, it's just a pebble. It's It's just, it's not gonna do much harm. (laughs) It's just a pebble. I'll just leave it. Maybe I'll take care of it the next day. Then the next day comes and five more pebbles are in your garden. And the more you refuse to deal with these little pebbles of sin, the more you wake up one day and you see your garden is choked out right now. (laughs) And he was saying that is what happened to him. And I say all that to say that we can't, 
afford to entertain even a pebble of temptation, of offense, (laughs) anything because of what the Lord has mandated on this house or what he's called us to. The standard is up here. We can't behave below the standard. I'm not suggesting anyone's doing that here. This is just what I feel the Lord imparting to the global bride of Christ right now. Scripture says that, have you not resisted sin until the shedding of blood? That sounds really intense, right? Resist sin until the shedding of blood. My question is, do we have the right intensity towards sin and temptation in our lives? It's not a sin to have temptation, but it's a sin to entertain temptation, entertain the offense. What are we feeding? What what are we feeding? Verse 17 of Judges. No razor. He's telling her this everything. No razor has ever been used on my head. He said, because I have been dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines. Come back once more. He has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair. The hair speaks of our glory, speaks of the glory of God. They shaved it off and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. You contrast that word, his strength left him with Psalm 18 where David said, I will love you, Lord, my strength. Just wanna say, our inner strength we have in the Lord is directly connected to how we love him in secret, to how we love him in private. His strength left him because he gave up the love he had in secret. Verse 20, then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as I did before and shake myself free. But he did not know the Lord had left him. I don't know what this looks like for you guys, but what this looks like for me personally, how this translates is if I spend a week outside of God's presence, (laughs) coming on a Sunday, not feeling the oil, not having steward oil. And I come up here and I just start pressing buttons because they worked last time. Even if the room might get loud, I know between me and him, you're missing the oil. You don't have the oil. You don't have the oil. They're shouting, but between me and you, I know you left the secret. You left the place of secrecy. Nothing is worth the pain of losing that. I just want to say, no amount of compromise is worth the pain of losing that sweetness that we have between the Lord. It says that they binded him with bronze shackles, binded him with shackles. I've discovered in my life that the enemies in one season that I used to just break off, the demonic strongholds I used to break off in one season, and the next season, become the very enemies that bind me up when I lose the secret place with the Lord. The enemies that he once broke off freely without any thought became the very same shackles that bound him in the next season where he lost that secret place. A few more examples, Hezekiah. Hezekiah, if you look at his life, he had the opportunity to be as great of a reformer as King David. He was on that path until, until he brought foreign kings into what the secret chambers and showed them everything. Showed them everything. David brought Bathsheba into what the king's secret chambers, which caused the death of his son and judgment upon Israel. Solomon brought foreign wives into his kingdom and they brought with them their own foreign gods into the holy temple. And Solomon ended up squandering David's legacy in his dynasty. Again, I want everybody to hear me when I say this. Please write this down. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. Whoever or whatever you give the secret place away to will be the very person or thing that attacks your destiny in God. I want to say it again. Whoever or whatever you give the secret place away to will be the very thing or person that attacks your secret place in God. In other words, whoever or whatever you choose in place of being with Jesus will come your way to have its way in your life. 
I say all that to say, I don't want to lose the manifest presence. I don't want to lose the kiss in the room. I don't want to lose it. He's too beautiful. He's too beautiful. Every issue of life comes down to one root, a satisfaction issue. The satisfaction can only be found in secret. Everybody in this room, many of you may be facing a day of trouble right now, a day of deep darkness. And many of us, we will face a day of deep darkness if we're not already. And that day of darkness will either define you or refine you based on how connected you are to the Lord in the secret place. The beautiful thing about Samson, there is a silver lining of redemption in this story. Scripture says, when he called on the name of the Lord again, he killed more in his death than he did when he was alive. And I just want to say for all of us, if that type of redemption is a, was available to Samson who lived under a lesser covenant, how much more will the Lord redeem, restore, rekindle us under the blood of Jesus? There's not nothing, there's not anything too dark or messed up that the blood can't restore, redeem, or recover. Nothing, 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 nothing. There's no sin, there's nothing. And the scriptural prescription Jesus gives us to come back to the place of secrecy, he gives us this prescription. It's almost like you go to the doctor and say, can I have a prescription for this? Jesus gives us a prescription in Revelation 2. If you lose your first love, I go back to this once a month. I have to redirect my heart. Oh, I'm fading. I'm like, get back here. Let me get back here. I go to this every month. Revelation 2. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. That means look at the distance that has been created and allow that to just bring lovesick sorrow in your heart to say, oh, wow, it's it's been so long since I felt your touch. It's been so long since I wept in your presence. Consider how far you've fallen and repent and do the things that you did at first. See, that word repentance, it can be broken up into two words. The word re, which means to return, and pentance means back to the top, to the heights. That's why it says come back to the heights, the high place that you've fallen from. Come back. Don't just turn away from sin and turn to another sin. Turn from sin and turn to the Lord Jesus. Repentance is a twofold act. It's not just a turning from, but it is also a turning to the Lord, turning to. Jean Guyon from this book said, the means you use to return to God will depend on how far you have turned from God. If you have only turned slightly, only the slightest turning again will be necessary. As soon as you notice yourself straying from the Lord, you should deliberately turn your attention within to the living God. Re-enter your spirit. Return at once to that place where you belong in Him. The more complete that turning is, the complete be your return to the Lord. I shared several times my story a couple years ago. I was dealing with sleeplessness for about two months. I couldn't sleep. And and what had happened, I didn't realize what had happened. It was so subtle, but my, my place with the Lord in prayer had just over time just become a little cold and routine and I wasn't in sin or anything, but, but it was just, it lost that fire. It lost that, that zeal. And I woke up one day and realized I couldn't sleep for two months. And it wasn't just like I slept a couple hours. It was just like, I couldn't sleep at all for two months. And, and the Lord, his prescription for me was the story of Elijah, where Elijah's uh, left because he was afraid of Jezebel and he had almost like a panic attack and was in severe depression, was even suicidal. He said, Lord, just take my life now. He was in a place of suicidal thoughts and he went up to the mountain. That's where the Lord spoke to him in the whisper. And then the Lord came to him and said, Elijah, what are you doing here? He said this, go back the way you came. And that was the word of the Lord for me. Go back the way you came. How far have you turned? Turn back and come the way you came. And so I, I cleared my schedule for the next two weeks. And every day from 8 a.m. in the morning till six o'clock at night, I sought the Lord with everything in me. I said, Lord, I, I have to sleep again. More than that, I have to feel your touch again. And little by little, that thing broke off of me and I got freedom. I've never battled that again. More happens in one hour of staring at Jesus than months, days, years on our own strength. Many can kind of think that it's just unproductive at the feet of Jesus. And I just want to say, sitting at his feet is not the absence of activity, but it's the igniting of divine activity. 
So with eyes closed and heads bowed, we can go ahead and stand up to our feet. Let's just stand up and just point our attention to him. My question to all of us, including myself, is do you miss him? Do you miss his touch? Do you miss his voice? Do you miss the, the Lord? just want to say that the greatest day in the Lord is not supposed to be the day you got saved. He, there's greater encounters available than that. just want to say there's deeper waters. There's deeper places that he has for all of us in this room. But my question is, do you miss him? He's one look away. He's one look away. And I want to pose one more question. In Matthew 27, 22, Pilate said after they, they had Barabbas and Jesus and they voted for Barabbas to be free. He said this, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called Messiah? And I want to suggest that same question is being asked to every single person on the earth right now in this season. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Will he be a peripheral side issue or will he be the oxygen in your lungs? What will you do with Jesus? What will you do? I just wanna pray over a few people today. He is one look away. If you feel like you've just oh, gotten cold and gotten sidetracked, you have permission this morning to leave completely burning with the fire of his presence. If you're a battling sin, any type of sin, whatever it be, oh, there's forgiveness this morning. There's forgiveness. And you can leave this room as if you've never sinned at all in your life. So a couple invitations. Number one, if you have never given your life to Jesus, if you've never asked him into your heart, or you want to rededicate your life and ask him to come back into your heart, please raise your hand right now if that's you, if you want to rededicate your life or come to the Lord for the first time. Jesus, we thank you, Lord. We thank you. And if that's you, I just, I just want anybody, if, if you just want fresh fire or anything, just feel free to come to the altar and let's just worship for a little bit. But if you, if you raised your hand and said, I want to rededicate my life to the Lord, please come to the front. We don't want to embarrass you. We just want to pray for you. Thank you, Jesus. Anybody else uh, just wants fresh fire? Just, just ask the Lord to fill you right now. Just ask the Lord to fill you. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.